The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. So we've been in Exodus now since, I think, February. Um, moving along, some weeks pretty quick, some weeks pretty slow. And some of you are thinking, didn't we talk about the Ten Commandments last week? I thought we just did this, why are we doing it again? If you were really paying attention last week... You heard Bill say that last week he was going to do 1 through 4, and this week we'd do 5 through 10. So that's why we're back in the Ten Commandments, uh, trying to stay and sit here in this incredibly important part of Scripture. We've said all along for Exodus that the way salvation works for Israel in Egypt is not different than the way salvation works for us. We too were in bondage and in death, captive in sin, not in Egypt to physical slavery, but to spiritual slavery, to sin. God appointed and sent a redeemer, a rescuer. Not Moses, he was fallible, but Jesus Christ, who called us out of that land of darkness and sin, who rescued us, who defeated the enemies of God to bring us and take us to the promised land where we're headed. Not a physical land, not Canaan, but something better, the new heavens and the new earth. And here at the beginning of their journey, Israel is given the law. They're given the Ten Commandments, and they're supposed to inform the way that Israel lives, not just on their journey to the promised land, but in the promised land. And so if everything else in Exodus impacts us, if everything else in Exodus is relevant to us, the Ten Commandments must be as well. The Ten Commandments are relevant to us because they're given by God himself. They're given from the mouth of God, and they're good. But as soon as we talk about these two things, that the law is given by God and the law is good, some people see attention. Um, for those of you who are in college or recent college or just well-read and have read Aristotle um, or are just deeply immersed in the secular, secular world with, with educated secular people, uh, there's a dilemma that people see here. You see, we say that the law is good, and we say that God gave the law, and we should obey it for both of those reasons. But, but which is first, and what's the relationship between the two? Is the law good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's good? Neither of these should be satisfying answers for us, because if the law is only good because God commands it, that means it could have been something else. That means that there's there's nothing in the law itself that is good. That means that we can't talk about good. We can talk about what God likes and what he dislikes, but we can't talk about the law as good. But on the other hand, If God says, I'm going to command this because it's good, that means he's submitting to something higher than himself. And we know that that can't be the case because God is God. He's the only God. So neither of these options work. What are you going to say to someone who challenges you on this? Why should I obey the Christian law? You know, you say it's good and that God gave it. Well, why not the Muslim law or the Buddhist law or the evolutionary biologist law? Why should I obey the Christian law? Well, the law that we're looking at this morning Those aren't the only two options. The law that we're looking at this morning, the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, is an expression of who God is. It's not arbitrary, as if God picked these ten things for us to do. And it's not God seeing something else good in the world and saying, okay, we'll do these things. No, it's God revealing himself through the law. Have no other gods before me flows from God's lordship, the fact that he alone is king. Don't lie flows from the fact that he is the God of truth. Don't commit adultery is based in the faithfulness of God. The law is not arbitrary, and the law is good. It's an expression 
of God's character. And we were made to image this God. We were made to know this law, to live in light of this law. So if the law is this great expression of who God is, if it's this this lofty and clear exposition of the character of God, what should our reaction be? What should our response be? Obviously, obedience. If God is God and we are his creatures, we should obey. And that's what I want to look at this morning, three different aspects of obedience in the Ten Commandments. The first thing we'll see, obedience is humanity's duty. Look at chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord. I'm king. I'm the Lord. I'm the ruler. God created everything. God is in control of everything. He is the Lord. And if for no other reason than that, we are to obey him. Everyone, everywhere, is duty-bound to obey the law of God. That's true for Christians and for non-Christians, for Muslims, for Buddhists, for old and young, for scientists and politicians. Everyone, everywhere, is to obey God's law. College students, college is not a pass on obeying God's law. Retirees, you don't get to check out from obeying God's law. It's not like you put in your time and say, okay, I did all that righteousness, now I'm done. God's law is applicable everywhere to everyone. So how are we doing as God's creatures? Not not even thinking about being as Christians yet, but as God's creatures, as ones made by God in his image, how are we doing at obeying the law? What does this law actually require? We're going to start with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. So at the very least, this means that you honor your father and mother. Children, obey your parents. Pray for your parents. They need prayer. They have children. Pray for them. Adults, honor your parents. Care for them. Call them every once in a while. For me, this means that I need to stop making fun of my mother when she can't remember the name of that actor in that movie about the people at the place. She can't remember because for years she devoted my schedule and my needs and my brother's schedules and my brother's needs and our cares and concerns, and there's no room left for who that actor was in that movie with that guy. I need to stop ridiculing my mother for her lack of pop culture knowledge. (laughs) And all of us live in such a way that our parents would be proud of us, that they would not be ashamed to say that we are their children. That's, that's the least of what the fifth commandment means. It's not less than that, but it is a whole lot more. The fifth commandment has to do with authority. It has to do with submission. It has to do with our relationships in situations where there is authority. And it's rooted in the character of God himself. In the person of the Trinity, we see that it's the son's joy to submit to the will of the father. So even in God himself, there's a relationship of authority and submission that informs the way that we're supposed to relate to one another. So that means inferiors, employees, children, honor your superiors. Honor those who are in charge of you. Obey their commands as long as they're lawful. Be loyal to them. Submit to their correction of you. Pray for them. Employees, that means not talking about your boss behind his back. That means submitting to their way of doing things, even if you think it's stupid and you have a quicker and better way to do it. Children, again, pray for your parents. Obey them. Submit to their care for you. Superiors, 
bosses, parents, anyone in authority, don't aggravate those under you. Don't aggravate your inferiors. Teach them, instruct them, reward them when they do well, and in love and humility, correct them when they do wrong. Be patient with them. Provide for them. That means bosses, view your employees like you want your boss to view you as a person, not a machine, as someone with a family that they'd like to see every once in a while, as someone with bills to pay, and likely as someone with hopes and dreams beyond their present position. What are you as a parent, as an employer, doing to equip those underneath you to advance out of their current situation in life, to advance out of their current job, for children to advance beyond being children when they get to high school, when they get to college, when they graduate? What are you as superiors doing to train and equip those under you? And to equals, to siblings, to coworkers, it means that we work together, not in competition, not trying to undermine one another, but together. Another example from my own life. When I was 19, I got a cell phone. Like, this is back in the days when cell phones were all new and, you know, every middle schooler didn't have one. I got one when I was 19 when I went to college. My brother got one when he was 15. And I was upset about this because I had to wait till I was 19 for a cell phone. How dare he get one when he's 15? It's not fair. The fifth commandment tells me to celebrate with him. The fifth commandment tells me to call him on that cell phone every once in a while, to, to pursue a meaningful relationship with my brother. With coworkers, don't try and make yourself look better than someone else. Don't misrepresent yourself. Don't undermine others, but celebrate when someone else gets the raise you thought you deserved. And all of this, for inferiors, for superiors, for equals, siblings, bosses, parents, all of this, not just in your actions, but in your heart, from your spirit, from a true motivation. That's what the fifth commandment requires of us. Sixth commandment, don't murder. And you're like, okay, I've got a little better handle on this one. I haven't killed anybody recently. At the very least, it means that we don't kill people unjustly, that we don't murder. It's certainly not less than that. But again, it means so much more. The sixth commandment deals with life and with health and is based in the character of God who is the Lord and giver of life. Don't disrespect the life that God breathes into his creation. Don't jeopardize it. Don't put it in jeopardy. Don't devalue or threaten someone else's life or your own. That means that you need to be careful how you drive. It means that we don't drive drunk. That means that we don't text and drive. It means that we obey the laws of traffic. It means you need to be careful about your diet and your health, that you need to seek to preserve your life and the life of your family through the way that you eat. It may mean that you reevaluate your chosen method of birth control. There are methods of birth control that don't prevent pregnancy but prevent a pregnancy from sticking. Those are unacceptable for believers. This commandment also means that you need to be careful about the way you use alcohol, tobacco, drugs, prescription or otherwise. If statistics are at all true, there are people in here who abuse legal prescription drugs. It's a violation of God's law. And of course, as Jesus tells us, not just in your actions, but in your heart, don't be angry with one another. Don't harbor bitterness. Don't hold grudges. Love one another. The sixth commandment is about so much more than just not killing people. So, two down. 
How's everybody doing? Positive? Uplifted? Encouraged? All right. Number seven. Don't commit adultery. What does this one mean? At the very least, it means that if you're married, you should not sleep with someone who's not your spouse. But you know where I'm going. It means so much more than that. The seventh commandment deals with purity and chastity in all of life, not just our sexuality. It's rooted in the character of God who's faithful to his chosen people. The seventh commandment means that we guard and care for our marriages. If your marriage is in trouble, the seventh commandment encourages you to seek help. If your marriage is not in trouble, it encourages you to continually seek to know and grow in intimacy and knowledge of your spouse. It means that we guard and care not just for our own marriage, but for the marriages of others. That if you see someone in trouble, you don't gossip about them. You reach out in love and in support. You help them find help. It means that we don't help others commit adultery. You know, technically it's impossible for a single person to commit adultery. That doesn't mean it's okay for you to help someone else commit adultery. It means that you don't encourage divorce in others. It means that you don't put yourself in compromising situations with someone else's spouse. The seventh commandment requires that we take marriage seriously. Young men especially, high schoolers, college students. The current trend in the world is for people to delay marriage longer and longer and longer. And in the church that I come from in Charlotte, there were lots of single women, great single women, who desperately wanted to be married, and lots of single men dragging their feet. Men, your decision to delay marriage does not just affect you, but you're effectively deciding for someone else that marriage is not in God's plan for their life right now. Don't delay marriage without good reason. And again, all of this, not just outwardly, but from our heart, from the inside. As Jesus reminds us, we guard against lustful looks and thoughts, not just actions. That means the seventh commandment requires you to get control of your daydreams. When the Westminster uh, assembly was trying to, to answer the question, what does the seventh commandment require? One of the things they said it required, or one of the things they said it forbade, was idleness, was laziness. Because when we have nothing to do, our minds wander, our minds drift. What do you daydream about, and what are you doing to get control of it? The seventh commandment means that you're careful when you walk through the magazine aisle at the grocery store. It means that you're careful when you drive down 278 in the summer about where your eyes go. Men, it means that we put a filter on our internet. It means that we encourage one another to sexual purity. The seventh commandment, like all the others, is about so much more than sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. All right, halfway done. Pretty good? Uplifted? Encouraged? Is anybody tired yet? Anybody exhausted? Good. That's where we should be. What you're experiencing is the second use of the law. Remember last week Bill talked about these three uses. The first is just to restrain evil in the world, to keep things from being as bad as they could. But the second is that the law is used as a mirror. It shows us our sin. When we hold up the law, if we only look at honor your father and mother, don't murder, and don't commit adultery, and and leave it at just those three easy things, we look pretty clean. 
But when we dive into it, when we see all that the law commands of us, all that the law requires of us, we realize that we're filthy not just outside in what we've done, but inside, in our hearts. We need cleansing. You should be realizing at least a couple things. One, you haven't obeyed this law. None of us have. I gave plenty of examples from my own life of my failure to obey this law. We're not even through the whole list, and already we're quiet. We're tired because our sin has been exposed. And remember, this isn't just violation of arbitrary commandments. It's not like God just picked this law. It's an expression of his character. And when we break the Ten Commandments, we're effectively saying to God, I wish you weren't like this. I wish you were different so that I could do these things that I want to do. We haven't done this law, and we can't do it. We know that we're utterly incapable of doing it on our own in the future. We're in trouble when the law gets held up to us like a mirror. And that's exactly where we should be. It's good that we recognize those things. Because without that realization, without a clear understanding of the holiness of God revealed in the law, we're going to keep trying to do it on our own strength. We'll say things like, oh well, I'll try harder next time. Because it's not that deep. Maybe if I just, you know, really white-knuckle it, I can do it this time. Without a realization of how absolutely desperate we are, we'll keep deluding ourselves into thinking that we can obey it. We'll never turn to the solution, which is the other part of the second use of the law. God doesn't just hold up the mirror and say, look at you, you're filthy. Ha ha ha, go clean yourself up. No, he holds up the mirror so that, we, so that we might realize we need something other than ourselves and something other than the mirror, something other than the law to clean us. We need something, someone outside of us to come in and clean us. The law is meant to drive us to Christ. In Christ, we see one who keeps the law perfectly. We see him honoring his earthly father and mother. We see him submitting to the will of his heavenly father. We see him dealing with authority well. Jesus obeys the fifth commandment. We see him not getting angry with people, not harboring bitterness towards people, actually forgiving the people that kill him. Christ obeys the sixth commandment. We see Christ's faithfulness to his bride, to come down and rescue her from death itself. Christ obeys the seventh commandment. And the eighth, and the ninth, and the tenth, and the first four, Christ perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And the good news of the gospel is that we get credit for it. This is astounding. This is what the second use of the law is meant to do, to show us our utter inadequacy to obey the law and drive us to the one who fulfilled it perfectly and freely gives us the credit. It's amazing that when God looks at a believer who is in Christ, he doesn't see their sin. He doesn't see their guilt. It's been borne by Christ on the cross. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Christ takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. Do you want to grow in your love for Christ? Study the holiness of God. Because as we study the holiness of God, we realize more and more and more how far short we've fallen. And we see more and more just how much Christ has done for us. So if you want to grow in your Christian life, if you want to grow in love for Christ, study the holiness of God. 
So that's point one. Obedience is mankind's duty. Don't worry, two and three are shorter. Obedience is mankind's duty, but unbelievably, for the believer, obedience is our joy. Listen to the rest of chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before Israel lifts a finger in obedience, God rescues them. Their salvation is not contingent on their obedience to the law. And the same is true of us. Before we lift a finger in good works and obedience to the law, God saves us. God rescues us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't delude yourself for one minute into thinking that you contributed to your salvation. You didn't. You couldn't. You were dead. Not of works. You were dead. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. But Paul continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I haven't seen many romantic comedies in my life, but most of them end the same way or have kind of the same progression. There are these two people introduced and maybe they're going to hit it off, but one of them does something bad and really screws it up. And the rest of the movie is about how this relationship gets restored, how these people come back together and finally end up together. And, you know, at the end of You've Got Mail, I wanted it to be you. Roll credits. The movie ends when the relationship starts. And that's how many of us view the Christian life. We see the Christian life ending at the moment of salvation. All of the story, all of my testimony has been about God getting me to himself and now I'm saved. Roll credits. That's not the Christian life. That's not a marriage. That's not a relationship. That's not the Christian life. There is a response to salvation by free grace alone. And that response is obedience. But the great thing about it is it's obedience that is our joy. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Everything that we've been talking about. We can't do anything good until we're connected to the vine. We can't bear fruit until we're connected to the vine. So the fruit that we bear does not earn us connection to the vine because we're already connected to the vine. The good works that we do do not merit our salvation. And yet Christ is calling us to faithfulness, to obedience. And here's the kicker. Here's the really incredible thing. This is the last thing that Jesus says in this abide in me, I'm the vine speech. These things, this obedience that I've called you to, this life that's in the vine, this bearing of fruit, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Christians should not have a martyr complex when it comes to the pursuit of holiness. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it goes against our flesh, but it's our joy. This is who we were made to be, and Christ puts his joy into us as we're connected to him bearing fruit. If there isn't joy in your Christian life, there are several things that might be causing that, but at least two, I think, are relevant here. Number one, you might not be obeying the law. If you're not living in light of the commands of God, you, have no, you, should, you shouldn't expect to be getting any joy in the Christian life. If you're violating the commands of God, when Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, why should we expect any joy? But the second reason, and probably the more likely reason, is that you're obeying for the wrong reasons. You've run straight past the second use of the law. Remember, seeing our sin, that we might run to Christ. You've forgotten that. You've run past that. And, and somehow, you're using your obedience as a call for acceptance. Maybe that God should accept you. Look, look how good I am, God. Don't you want me on your team? Maybe you're trying to impress someone else by how holy or how spiritual you are. You're trying to leverage your obedience into some kind of benefit for yourself rather than obeying as one connected to the vine, as one responding to the mercy of God in Christ. No wonder you don't have any joy. Jesus wants to put his joy in you, and he can't do that if you're trying to bear fruit on your own outside of connection to him. That kind of obedience is not sustainable. It will only last as long as it's convenient. When you're no longer at the Christian Academy, when you no longer live in your parents' house, when your business persona is no longer enhanced by being a Christian business, when obeying God's law doesn't elevate you in someone else's eyes, your obedience will fall away. Obedience, however, motivated by a faith sight of Christ, our connection to him, our involvement with him, that is our joy. So if there's no joy in your Christian life, I challenge you, Ask yourself, why am I obeying? Am I obeying? And if so, why? Obedience is still our duty. We're still human beings made by God, but by his grace, it's our joy as well. William Cooper sums, up, sums it up well in a hymn of his. Um, he's not super well known. He wrote, uh, There is a fountain filled with blood, which many of us know. Uh, but this hymn, No Strength of Nature Can Suffice, hymn names are terrible because it's just the first line of the hymn, which tells you nothing about the hymn. Um, in the hymn, No Strength of Nature Can Suffice, he says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice. So, second use of the law, to see our sin and to see it fulfilled by Christ, to see it done, to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. We are no longer slaves and mere servants doing a master's will. We are children of God, delighting in the joy of obedience. And finally, obedience is the church's witness. Obedience is humanity's duty. It's the believer's joy, but it's the church's witness. Listen again to Jesus. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Love one another is just shorthand for the last six commandments. Remember, Bill last week talked about the vertical, love the Lord your God, and the horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We are called to obey the law, and it's our delight to obey the law, but here we have even more incentive to do it. Our obedience to the law, especially within this room, within this community, is a witness to an unbelieving world. If we say we want to be a people who have an impact for Christ in individual lives, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and in the world, it starts with our obedience to the law with those here. Honor and respect one another. Don't kill one another with bitterness, with anger, with grudges. Guard the marriages here. Older couples, the younger families here need your wisdom. Younger families, you need the experience and the faithfulness and the wisdom of the older couples here. Even if you don't think you do, I'm telling you, you do. Seek them out. Seek out their stories. Have them invest in you. Guard the marriages here. Don't steal from one another. Don't lie to one another. Don't lie about one another. Don't lie about yourself to one another. Don't covet homes, jobs, bank accounts, plantation you live in, schedules, families, cars, kids, spouses, donkeys, oxen, male servants, and females. Don't covet what one another has. God has richly blessed us. There have been a lot of calls to action this morning, a lot of things to do, and good reasons to obey. It's our joy. It's our witness. But remember, you can't do it on your own. We haven't done it on our own. We haven't done it at all And it's okay because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to new obedience. We limp after it. We don't do it perfectly. But our obedience, if not rooted in who we are in Christ, will only be superficial and it will not last. On the front of your bulletin, there's a quote from Jen Wilkin that sums up well our call moving forward from here today. It's the middle one. And she says, Jesus called for obedience in motive as well as in deed. That's obedience from the heart, not just in our actions. The kind of godly obedience that is impossible for someone whose heart has not been transformed by the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Rather than abolish the law, Jesus deepened his followers' understanding of what it required. That's what we did this morning. Not just don't murder, but don't text and drive. He deepened their understanding of what it required and then went to the cross to ensure they could actually begin to obey it. Would you pray with me? Father, again this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law that that it reveals to us who you are, what you're like, what you love. Father, as we see our failures to live up to it, our failures to even obey sort of, Father, I pray that you would help us to see Christ, to see the one who obeyed it perfectly, who fulfilled the law to the letter. And Father, seeing him, being found in him, being connected to him as to a vine, Father, I pray that you would help us to bear the fruit of obedience that is our joy. We ask these things in his name. Amen.